Section four of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two Ascendancy of Pompeius, His Subjugation of the Cilician Pirates, and Conquests in the East. Part two. While engaged in these operations, and setting up or putting down at pleasure thrones and dynasties, Pompeius regarded himself as the autocrat of the East, the king of kings, another Xerxes. He had wrested from Mithridates the kingdom of Pontus, and pursued him along the coast of the Euxine beyond the Phasis. But from thence he had turned to the east and to the south, and had allowed his baffled and dispirited adversary to maintain himself in the Cimmerian Cursonese, on the furthest confines of his possessions. He was content to foster intrigues against him in his own family, and it was by the defection of his favourite son Pharnaces that the king was prevented from executing an audacious plan of attacking Italy herself on the side of Thrace and Illyria. Pharnaces entered into relations with the Romans. Mithridates marched against him, but was at last abandoned by his own soldiers, and was reduced, it was said, in his extremity to take poison. The popular account affirmed that his system had been so fortified by the habitual use of antidotes that the poison took no effect, but this is one of the marvellous stories of antiquity to which modern science will hardly allow us to give credit. At all events, the terrible Mithridates fell at last upon the sword of one of his own Gaulish captives. Pompeius was himself in Judea when the death of his chief adversary was announced to him. He was now at leisure to advance northward and secure the fruits of this crowning success. At Amesis in Pontus he received from Pharnaces the dead body of Mithridates to make him doubly sure of his triumph, and policy rather than generosity induced him to give it royal obsequies at Sinope and thus render the fact of his death notorious throughout the region in which the mere name of the great tyrant had sufficed to raise innumerable armies. The success of Pompeius was now complete, but it had been gained from the first over exhausted or distracted enemies. He had obtained vast advantages for the Republic, yet he could hardly be said to have reaped fresh laurels for himself but his reputation as a captain was already well established, and Rome was content to ascribe the extension of her empire in the east to a military genius which in fact he had hardly exercised at all. She had embraced within her frontiers a number of dependent sovereigns. Dei Otaris occupied the vassal throne of Galatia. Attalus affected to reign in Pamphlagonia. Ariobarzanes and Cappadocia but Pontus, Cilicia, and Syria were definitively added to the list of the provinces. Beyond the lines of her stations and garrisons, the republic supported the sovereignty of Pharnaces on the Bosphorus and of Herod in Palestine, and she completely detached the kingdom of Armenia from the influence of Parthia. In the course of time a great portion of these regions became absorbed in the empire, but it was only occasionally, and but for a brief period, 
that the outposts of the roman power were pushed beyond the eastern limits at which pompeius had placed them the senate vaunted the patriotic services of the imperator to whom it still looked for the maintenance of its own ascendancy it trusted though not without some misgiving that the camps in asia had given it a second sulla to assert the prerogatives of the oligarchy the dissensions in the city were threatening it with a revival of the claims of the marians but it still clung with fitful hope to its powerful army and its victorious general pompeius had seemed indeed to break with the optimates when he allowed the tribunes to raise the people in his interest and thrust upon him the vast and irregular powers of the gabinian and manilian laws but they could hardly deny that the first of these was a measure of pressing necessity and that they had themselves given occasion to the second by the abandonment of their ill-used champion lucullus they now expected doubtless that the altered state of affairs at rome would compel the chief of the army to make common cause with them for his own sake for the course of events had raised up a rival there of whom he could not fail to be jealous the young gaius julius caesar had become a power in the state descended from an ancient patrician race which claimed as its eponym eulus the son of aeneas the grandson of anchises and the goddess venus he could point to the images of many noble ancestors though none of them had attained the highest distinction in the roman annals caesar's birth and origin might thus have attached him to the party of the senate and the optimates which comprised the chief historical houses of the commonwealth but marius as it chanced had married his aunt and his early predilections were thus engaged to the marians his first marriage also which he had contracted as a mere boy was with a daughter of cinna as a youth however he gave no special token of devotion to a cause or aptitude for public affairs he plunged from the first into a career of dissipation redeemed only by the elegance of his tastes and manners but he early embarrassed himself with a load of debt while he made himself many personal enemies by the looseness of his amatory intrigues no matron it was said could resist his beauty while his gracious manners exercised a wondrous fascination over the gravest statesman sulla indeed had divined his genius and warned some who had spoken slightingly of him that in the young caesar there was many a marius but pompeius who had come in contact with him on his return from spain in the height of his own ascendancy had deemed him no more than a serviceable dependent and cicero when he looked around him for a party to serve and a patron to follow had persuaded himself that the state had nothing to fear and he had himself nothing to gain from the elegant debauchee who trailed his gown so loosely in the forum caesar however was conscious of his own powers nor did he place less reliance on his own fortune it is related that in his youth he fell into the hands of the pirates on the coast of asia and when they offered to release him for a ransom of twenty talents insisted on their taking no less than fifty assuring them at the same time that he would have them all hanged at last a threat which he soon found means of actually carrying into effect he was still a private student at rhodes holding no military appointment 
when hearing that mithridates was attacking some allies of the republic he collected troops on his own account and levied successful wars against the most redoubtable of its enemies during the years that followed caesar continued to watch the career of pompeius and meditated rivalling him in the favour of the citizens but his first care was to support the measures such as those of gabinius and manilius which were brought forward by the great man's creatures for enhancing his personal ascendancy such measures served caesar's designs in two ways they rendered men's minds more and more familiar with the notion of autocratic government to which all classes seemed to look as the inevitable issue of affairs and at the same time they helped to increase the jealousy of the nobles toward the man who had once been their minister but who was now making himself more and more independent of them caesar beheld with satisfaction the motions of the tribune cornelius for curbing the excessive usury which the nobles had allowed themselves to exact for the loans negotiated with them by the provinces the tribune was encountered by furious opposition and opposition was overcome by violence in the comitia when an impeachment was hurled against the obnoxious officer who it seems had not scrupled to disregard the veto of a colleague whose services had been purchased by the senate a tumult ensued manilius ventured to defend the culprit and tried to overawe his opponents with the name of pompeius the consuls however had the courage to exert military force and the affair was subjected to legal process cicero at the instigation of pompeius or of his adherents was retained to defend the accused and ventured to plead the favour in which he was held by the redoubted champion of the republic who was engaged far away in its defence and aggrandisement the arguments of the orator proved successful the charge was allowed to drop sixty five b c the countenance thus given to popular violence was of fatal significance from that time it was again and again repeated with aggravated fury the senate and the people were thus committed to a struggle which could not fail to demand the interference of a power paramount to both it required little foresight to anticipate the effect of the conqueror's triumphant return from the east unless indeed his threatened supremacy should be counterbalanced by the creation of a rival power supported by an overwhelming popular feeling at home it was to the creation of such a power that caesar was directing all his resources in the year sixty five caesar obtained the idealship in conjunction with bibulus the candidate of the nobles this office was charged with providing amusements for the populace it required an enormous outlay of money but it opened the way through the favour of the people to the highest public honours caesar played his game boldly he charmed the populace by the expenses he lavishly incurred and especially by the profusion of silver bullion with which he decorated the furniture and implements of the arena plunged already deep in debt he continued to borrow on the credit of his genius and his rising fortunes if the wealthy bibulus equalled caesar in munificence the people gave him no credit for generosity nor were the manners of the penniless adventurer less ingratiating than his reckless prodigality 
Bibulus was fain to liken himself to Pollux, who, though he possessed a temple, conjunction with his twin brother, heard it always called by the name of Castor, rather than by his own. Caesar could now rely on the clamorous support of the populace for the bold measures on which he ventured. He had already irritated the nobles by parading the proscribed bust of Marius in public. He now erected the statue of his fallen enemy among the ornaments of the capital, and surrounded it with the trophies of his victories. The people shouted with delight, the nobles scowled indignantly. Catullus determined to bring him to punishment for a violation of the law of attainder. Catullus was not only the chief leader of the Senate and the political heir of Sulla, he was the son of the noblest victim of the Marian massacres. He accused Caesar of ulterior designs. He declared that he was not assaulting the Republic, not covertly with mines, but with the battering ram openly. Caesar defended himself in the Senate House, and even there he succeeded foiling his accuser. But he extorted his acquittal from the fears of the Assembly, rather than from its justice or its favor. The nobles contented themselves with a prompt retaliation. When, about to resign the idealship, Caesar demanded a public mission to take possession of Egypt, in virtue of the will of the king Ptolemaeus Alexander. This country, through which the commerce of the East passed into Europe, was regarded as the wealthiest in the world. It offered a magnificent prey to the rapacious republic, and an ample harvest to the fortunate officer who should be appointed to annex it. Crassus and Caesar disputed this rich booty, but the Senate evaded the demands of both equally. A tribune named Papius was engaged to demand that all foreigners, and especially Caesar's clients, the Transpadane Gauls, be removed from the city. And when his most vehement partisans were thus disabled, Caesar probably himself assisted in preventing the success of his rival. The government allowed the bequest of the Egyptian monarch, whether real or pretended, to remain in abeyance, rather than subjecting itself to the peril of flinging so splendid a prize into the hands of any one of the citizens. 65 B.C. But Caesar obtained a seat on the tribunal which inquired into cases of murder. This appointment had a political significance which he could turn to account. Hitherto he had done no more than protest by silent tokens against the dictatorship of Sulla. He now resolved to brand it with a legal stigma. He cited before him and condemned as political offenders two men who had acted as Sulla's instruments of blood. He went still further back in his inquisition. He induced one of the tribunes to accuse an aged senator, Rabirius, of the slaughter of the traitor Saturninus. Both Cicero and Hortensius were engaged by the nobles to defend the victim, but the people seemed to exult in the audacious injustice of the process, for it was well known, first, that Rabirius had not done the deed, secondly, that the real slayer had been publicly justified at the time, and lastly, that the transaction had occurred as much as thirty-six years before, and might well deserve to be buried in oblivion, after so many political revolutions. The appeal of Rabirius would actually have been rejected, but for the adroitness of the praetor Metellus Keller, 
who suddenly struck the flag which waved from the geniculum during the public assembly of the tribes in ancient times the striking of this flag was the signal that the etruscans were advancing to attack the city instantly all business was suspended the comitia was dissolved and the citizens rushed sword in hand to man the walls the formality still held its ground among a people singularly tenacious of traditional usages and now again the multitude which had just clamoured for innocent blood laughed at the trick by which its fury was baffled and acquiesced in the suspension of the proceedings caesar had gained his point in alarming and mortifying the senate and allowed the matter to drop which he had never perhaps intended to push to extremity Lavienus, the tribune who had been caesar's agent in this matter procured his patron a further gratification in requiring the abrogation of the cornelian law by which sulla had withdrawn from the people the nomination to the college of pontiffs the chief place in that body was now vacant and the popular election promptly fell upon the new favourite who was placed thereby in command of a great political engine and whose person was rendered legally inviolable sixty three b c neither the notorious laxity of his moral principles nor his avowed contempt for the religious traditions of the multitude hindered caesar's advancement to the highest office of the national worship it sufficed that he should perform the stated functions of his post and maintain the prescriptive usages on which the state pretended to repose her safety and well-being caesar's triumph was the more complete as it was gained over catullus who had contemptuously offered to buy off his opposition by a loan of money but caesar had declared that he would borrow more and more largely from any quarter rather than forego a prize which had become indeed necessary for his personal security he was menaced with an impeachment for treason against the state and whether he was conscious of guilt or not his enemies he knew were not more scrupulous than himself when the hour of election arrived he said to his mother on quitting his house this day your son will be either chief pontiff or an exile End of section four